Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Focus this morning will be Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. Last Sunday, if you were here, you'll remember that we looked at Luke's account of Saul's ministry immediately after uh, his experience with Christ on the Damascus Road, his, his ministry immediately following his conversion. You'll remember that we saw Paul uh, preaching the gospel boldly, preaching boldly that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and at first, we, we learned that his ministry was, was merely confounding to the Jews. They, they tried to argue with him, but as they had previously discovered with Stephen, they could not withstand him. And in time, their agitation became anger and eventually aggression to the point that they began plotting to kill him. And it was this plotting that forced Saul to flee, escaping through a hole in the wall in Damascus. This is where we pick up the story this morning. Saul fleeing from Damascus and going to Jerusalem. Before we hear the reading of God's word, let's first pray and ask for his blessing upon the ministry of his word. Father God, we come to your word this morning humbly, acknowledging that it is indeed your living word, that imperishable seed by which we have been born again, that pure spiritual milk by which we grow up in our salvation. And so we pray, Father, that you would attend to the ministry of your word here this morning, that you would, according to your promise, make it effective, that it would not return to you void, but it would bring forth among us a harvest of righteousness. The praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. This is the very word of God. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off. To Tarsus. This is the reading of God's word. Children, you can come forward to meet Pastor Sam. It, it, it's hot as anything, 
and she wants to drink <laughs> bubbles? Like, what, what kind of person is she? And at that point, you know, I could do a couple of different things, right? I could let my suspicions kind of run away with me and start telling everybody that this girl from Wisconsin likes to drink bubble liquor. Like, I could tell them she probably burps bubbles. Um, or I could sincerely try to understand what on earth she was talking about. Well, I asked her, what do you mean? What's a bubble and, and that's when she told me. She said, you know, it's that thing on the wall where you press a button and water shoots out. And it, in Wisconsin, we call those bubblers. And I was like, oh, 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 you just want a water fountain. Come on, I'll show you where it is. Now, now stop and think for a minute. How much hurt could I have done if I had just let my suspicions run away with much? A lot, right? But by moving toward her and asking a question and trying to understand what she meant, I discovered, hey, she's actually just like me. She needs water. <coughs> I need water. We're the same like that. You understand, as Christians, sometimes we're going to hear other people who also say that they're Christians, we're going to hear them say things or see them do things that we don't necessarily understand. And, and it's easy to let our suspicions run away with us and act like that person does not belong to Jesus like I do. But like Barnabas with Saul in the passage that we just read, we need to learn how to move toward those people and listen carefully to understand what they actually mean, which may be very different than what we assume. Now, it's true that we might end up discovering some real differences between us and them, but it's also possible that we might discover real unity with them, that we belong to the same kingdom, that we have the same King Jesus. We, we might really belong to Jesus together, and, and if that's true, then we might have an opportunity to even defend that person from other Christians who might still be suspicious of that person. Now, all of that, is, as you can imagine, all of that is going to require some humility and some patience on our part, some love. It's going to require some deep trust in Jesus and really knowing the truth that he tells us in his word. But moving towards somebody like this, listening to understand what they're actually saying, that's a big part of how God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's a beautiful way for us to protect the unity of all Christians, even those who might sound different from us at first. Is that something that you want to try to do? You want to try to live that way? Me too. May God help us to do it. chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. As I said, we are picking up uh, the story uh, immediately after Saul's escape.
escape from Damascus. And we're told that, that after escaping Damascus, he returned to Jerusalem, where he had come from, to Damascus in the first place. And, and we know that upon coming to Jerusalem, Saul immediately attempted to join the disciples who were already there. And I, I think that is significant in its own right. Saul had been part of a Christian community in Damascus. We, we, we know this because it was his disciples who helped him escape from the Jews who were plotting to take his life. And so Paul was part of the Christian community then. He was, he, was he was among the disciples of Jesus Christ. And here we learn that upon coming to Jerusalem, he attempts to join the disciples there. And I believe that this, this shows us that Paul understood the Christian's need for community. He understood that the need that every Christian has to be part of the church. A Christian needs a community of believers with which to do life. Even the Apostle Paul needed such a community. He needed a community with which to, to worship and with which to learn and to, and to pray. But more than this, he simply needed a community with which to share his life. And every Christian needs such a community. We, we need to be part of a fellowship, a, a fellowship of saints, a, a communion of believers, because we cannot live the Christian life. We, we cannot walk in a manner worthy of our calling if we are alone, if we are by ourselves, if we are isolated. And that means that, that you need to be part of a community. And that means that you need to do more than simply come on Sunday morning. It's good to come. It's, it's important to come. It's important to be here in the, in the, uh, the worship of God's people on the Lord's day. That such worship is the foundation and the fountain of the Christian life. But you must also share your life with the people around you, the people with whom you are worshiping. Here at Trinity, we, we try to... to uh, allow for such connections. We try to allow for such community to be built in our, our small groups that meet on Sunday evenings. It's a way that we, we are able to get to know one another and share our lives with one another. We, we recognize that not everyone is able to attend our, our small groups. For one reason or another, you may not be able to participate in, in one of the groups that we offer. But if you're not able to be part of one of those groups, you still need to make connections. You still need to, to uh, devote yourself to developing relationships with other believers. You need to attempt to join the disciples. Just as Saul did when he came to Jerusalem, you need to be part of a Christian community so that you can not only worship together, but so that you can encourage one another, so that you can speak the truth of love into one another's lives, so that you can build one another up. So that you can encourage one another in the midst of, of difficult times. This is what Saul did when he came to Jerusalem. And we must do the same. But of course, if you've ever been part of a church, never tried to develop relationships, tried to join yourself to the community, you can know that sometimes that is challenging. And we, we actually see that here. Notice what happens when, when Saul goes to the disciples in Jerusalem. Tell, Saul, Luke tells us that when Saul tried to join the disciples, they were afraid of him. That they weren't sure that they wanted him coming in because they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now you have to admit that's understandable. Even after three years, it's understandable that they still had their 
suspicions. No doubt they had heard stories of Saul's conversion, and maybe even heard stories of his ministry in Damascus. But they also knew firsthand what he had done to the Christians in Jerusalem before he left. And so they were skeptical of his professed conversion. <coughs> maybe he was a false brother brought in to, to spy and to, and to take names so that his prosecution of the church would be all that more effective sometime down the road. After all, Christians were being persecuted. Christians were being arrested. Stephen had even been killed right there in Jerusalem. Caution was in order. And so they were cautious. They were suspicious. They were skeptical of Saul's professed conversion. Let me say that, that such suspicion is not necessarily sinful. There is no virtue in being noble. There is, there is no virtue in being easily deceived. The problem is not suspicion in and of itself. It is what we do with our suspicions that make a difference. I think here Barnabas gives us a beautiful picture of what we ought to do with our suspicions. We're told in verse 27 that Barnabas took Saul and brought him and declared to the apostles. Now notice that. Barnabas brings Saul to the, the believers and he speaks on his behalf. What does that tell us? What, what, we, what can we learn from the fact that Barnabas speaks for Saul? It, it tells us that Barnabas had gone to Saul, that he had engaged with him, that he had listened to him, that he had heard his story, that he had evaluated his, his claims. Barnabas didn't assume that his suspicions were correct and immediately act on them. No doubt, Barnabas shared those suspicions. Barnabas was part of the community. He, he knew what Saul had done in Jerusalem. But instead of assuming that his suspicions were correct, he went to Saul. He engaged him. He listened to him. And he, and he went to him in such a way that he was open to having his mind changed. You see, there's a way of engaging that is not open to persuasion. No matter what a person says or does, the, the original assumptions are always read back into their story. <laughs> Ulterior motives are, are always assumed. I, I know he said this, but, but I know. I know he did this, but, but I know. These are the things that we say to ourselves to, to protect our suspicions. But this is exactly what Barnabas does not do. He, he goes to Saul, he engages him, he listens to him, and he is persuaded. Why? Because, because of what he hears. What does he hear from Saul? Well, we know what he hears because of what he's able to say to the apostles. He, he knows of, of Paul's encounter with the Lord on the road. He, he knows what happened. He knows of that extraordinary event where, where Saul was, was knocked from his horse, where he was blinded uh, by a great light, where he, he then would spend time in Damascus and was uh, 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 a man named Ananias was sent to him. He knows all of that. He knows all that Jesus orchestrated to, to, to bring Saul to a place of repentance and to, and to commission him in his service. And he knows how Paul responded to that commission. He, he knows of Paul's costly ministry. He knows that he preached boldly in Damascus. So having heard 
Saul's story, he is convinced. And once convinced, he takes Saul to the apostles and he speaks on his behalf. He mediates for him to, to bring peace between him and the other disciples. And, and I want to suggest to you that that is a beautiful picture of what we ought to do with our suspicions regarding other professed believers. Today in the evangelical church, our, our suspicions are sometimes based on what other people have done in the past as the believers in Jerusalem, as their suspicions were of Saul. They, they knew what he had done. They, they struggled to believe that he could change. That is sometimes the case in the, the church today. We, we know what someone has done in the past, and we wonder if they're really a believer, if they could really change. But more often, I think, in the present, our, our suspicions are based on what people are currently doing and, and currently saying. We, we've seen such suspicions in the church over the course of the last couple of years related to, to COVID, have we not? People on one side are suspicious of the other. People who, who wear masks are suspicious of those who don't. People who don't are suspicious of those who, who do. We're, we're suspicious of, of people who, who see things and, and do things differently. But of course, suspicion didn't start with the pandemic. Before the pandemic, there were all kinds of, of suspicions of, uh, between Christians. Two of the hot topics that have been uh, going on in our particular denomination for some time are, are related to, to social justice, particularly to, to racism and to, to homosexuality. Now let me say, let me say as clearly as I can say it, there is no debate in the PCA regarding the sinfulness of either racism or homosexuality. Everyone on every side of the debate agrees that these are sins. There are strong differences of opinion about the, the nature of racism or about the, the nature of homosexual temptation. Therefore, there are, there are strong differences of opinion about how these things are to be addressed and what it looks like to, to fight these sins. And there is a great deal of suspicion by people on both sides of the debate regarding the people on the other side. People ask, how, how could someone who believes this, or how could someone who, who does that, how could they be a genuine follower of Christ? And again, let me say that's a fair question. Suspicion isn't the problem. But what is, is what we do with our suspicion. When we are skeptical, when we have questions, we must engage, we must talk, we must listen, and we must do so sincerely. And in good faith. And, when we and then, having heard, we must decide whether this person's view is really out of accord with the gospel. Whether this, this person's view really does call into question their profession of faith. Or is this something about which sincere Christians might sincerely disagree and still remain in communion with one another? Now again, hear me. There are disqualifying views. There are disqualifying practices. Paul makes this abundantly clear in his letter to the Galatians. He says, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, let him be anathema. There are views, there are practices that are out of accord with the gospel. When, when Peter was living out of accord with the gospel and was refusing to eat with Gentiles, Paul rebuked him to his face. He did it publicly for the sake of the church, for the sake of the purity of the church, because he knew that the way that, that, Paul, or that Peter was living there was out of accord with the gospel. So there are views, there are practices. 
weaknesses that strike at the vitals of our faith that cannot be abided. But Paul also knew that there were places where Christians could disagree and disagree charitably. He makes this clear in his first letter to the, the Corinthians when he speaks of, of being all things to all peoples. Amongst the Jews, he lives as a Jew. Amongst the Gentiles, he, he lives as, as a Gentile because he knows that these things are not at the heart of the gospel. These are secondary, even tertiary issues. And so we have to make a judgment. We, we have to decide, is what this other person is doing, does it disqualify them? Does it truly discredit their profession of faith? We have to make that sort of judgment. But in order to make that sort of judgment, we must first engage. We must first listen and listen to understand. That's what Barnabas did with Saul. And that's what we must do. We must engage those of whom we are suspicious. We must listen to them. And we must hear what they are actually saying. So that we can know whether this is someone to, to be brought into the communion. Or someone for whom to be remain cautious. I think this is what we learn when we when we see Barnabas going to Saul, bringing him into the community. But but notice after Barnabas does this, Saul is then able to go in and out of that. That tells us that the community received him. But he also begins a, a bold preaching ministry, just as he had had in Damascus. Now think about that. Here is Saul, who's just been chased out of Damascus by people trying to take his life because he was boldly preaching the gospel, and yet here he is again, boldly preaching in Jesus' name, knowing that he's likely to bring uh, the same type of trouble upon his head. But what does this mean? What does it mean to, to preach the gospel boldly? I want to suggest to you that it has less to do with style, it has less to do with a manner of speaking, and it has more to do with the substance of what is being proclaimed. No doubt Paul spoke with conviction. I, I have no doubt about that. He tells us in his letter to the Romans that, that, that I am not at all ashamed of the gospel. And so he did not speak as one who was ashamed. But preaching boldly has more to do with what he was saying than how he was saying it. The gospel says that God, the one true God, Yahweh, the God who, who called Abraham out of earth, the God who entered into covenant with him, that the one true and living God, that he is the creator of all things, and that he made all things for himself, for his own glory. And it tells us that he made men and, and women in his image to rule over that creation on his behalf, as his representative. But it also tells us that Mankind was not content to honor God as God by serving Him joyfully. But instead, God, a man rebelled against God by eating that forbidden fruit, by doing what was right in his own eyes, by, by grasping at the authority to, to define life for himself. And in so doing, in, in rejecting God, he alienated himself from God. He, he cut himself off from God's grace, and he put himself under God's and this means that every man or woman who has descended from Adam, descended from our first parents by ordinary generation, every man and woman born in Adam has been born under a curse. Has been born subject to, to death and to eternal wrath. That is the human condition. We are born under judgment. We are born under a destiny because in Adam we are guilty. 
worse than even this. Not only are we guilty, we are also corrupted. We have not only inherited Adam's curse, but we have also inherited his corruption. We are born not only under a, a, a death sentence, but we are born with a sinful nature, a nature that is bent towards sin. And therefore makes it impossible for us to do anything that might reconcile us to God. We are born separated from God and without hope of being reconciled to Him. That is the human condition. Without God and without hope, Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. That is where we are at birth. But of course, we are only without hope in ourselves. Because there is hope for us in God's sovereign mercy. The mercy that has been made available to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was born under the law. Who lived a life of perfect obedience under that law. In our place, as our representative. And then, took our sin upon him and died upon the cross for our sins. Being raised again for our justification. So that any and all who believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. This is the heart of the gospel. You were made by God. You were made for God. But in your sins, you have been alienated from Him and, 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 and under His judgment, without hope of saving yourself, without hope except for His sovereign mercy in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. <clears throat> the gospel that Paul was proclaiming in Damascus. This is the gospel that he was proclaiming in Jerusalem. And it is truly good news. It is, it is good news beyond our wildest imagining. That we who are without God and without hope have been sent a redeemer. That we have been provided a salvation that, that is offered freely as God's gift to sinners. To be received by faith alone. This is truly good news. But understand, it is also offensive news. Think about it. The, the gospel requires us to admit that we are the enemies of God. That by nature... We are irreparably bent towards sin. That, that, that in ourselves, we, we are utterly without hope. This is, what the, this is what the gospel requires you to believe about yourself. It's the first thing you must admit if you're going to join yourself to, to Christ's church. We, we must admit that we are without hope except in His sovereign mercy. We must admit that our only hope is to be saved by another. We must admit that we cannot contribute anything to our salvation. We can't even recommend ourselves for consideration. It is all of grace. And it can only be grace. Salvation can only be received as a gift from God. And this is why both Jews and Gentiles found the gospel so offensive in Paul's days. It's why the Gentiles regarded it as foolishness. It's why the, uh, the, the Jews regarded it as a, as a scandal. And it's why it takes boldness to preach the gospel without compromise or accommodation. In our weakness, our tendency is to, is to want to say what people want to hear, to, to itch their ears, as Paul says elsewhere. We, we want people to like us. We want people to affirm us. We, we don't like to bring trouble down on our heads. And so there is a constant pressure, a constant temptation to accommodate the gospel. To what people want to hear. Because if our message is offensive, we will be rejected. If our message is offensive, we will be dismissed or even worse. 
And so when Paul or when Luke tells us that, that Saul preached the gospel boldly, he's telling us that, that Saul refused to compromise. He refused to accommodate. He preached the gospel as it truly is. He preached the one true gospel of salvation alone in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the gospel that he preached boldly in Jerusalem. This is the gospel that, that antagonized the Hellenists. This is the, the, the gospel that, that, that led to the death threats against him. But he preached it boldly. And in doing so, he set a pattern for the church in every age and in every place. Like Saul, the church must always and forever preach boldly in the name of the Lord. On secondary and tertiary issues, Paul could be extremely flexible. He could be all things to, to all people, and we must emulate him in that flexibility. But when it came to first order issues, when it came to the gospel, Paul was perfectly inflexible. And the church must be the same. The world still finds the gospel offensive. They are, they are offended by the idea that we were made for God. That God made us for himself. That, that's, that's offensive. People, people want to belong to themselves. People, people want to be the captain of their own ship. And more than that, they are offended by the idea that, that God's wrath would be kindled by our sins. How dare he be offended by us just doing what comes naturally? They are offended by the idea of creation. They are offended by the idea of, of God's holiness. They are offended by the idea that, that we are sinners. That what we do and what we desire to do is, is somehow unacceptable. They are offended by the idea that, that we are utterly helpless and without hope. They are offended by the idea that, that Jesus is the only Savior, the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And they are offended by the idea that they must deny themselves to follow after Him if they would live. And of course we could go on. We could go on listing all the aspects of the gospel that, that the world hates at every point. Every point, we will be pressured to compromise the gospel. We will be pressured to, to accommodate the sensibilities of the world. But we must not. We must not compromise. We must not accommodate. Yes, we can be gracious and flexible on, on, on levels of, of secondary importance. But when it comes to the gospel, we must be steadfast. We must be inflexible. We must be uncompromising. This is what Paul shows us as he goes into Jerusalem. Having just fled from Damascus for preaching this same gospel, he goes into Jerusalem and begins to preach the same. And remember, it wasn't just the Christians who knew what had happened in Jerusalem. Paul did too. He was part of it. He was the, the spearhead of it. He knew there were still people there uh, who would follow his old lead who would seek to silence him by violence if necessary, and yet he preached the gospel boldly without compromise. And of course, that leads us to our third and final point here. In verse 29, we are told that in the course of his ministry, Saul was speaking with and disputing with the Hellenists. 
Remember, the, the Hellenists are the, the Greek-speaking Jews, most likely from the, uh, the diaspora who, who had been spread throughout the, the empire. These are not Jews who were native to Judea, but these are Jews who lived elsewhere. But they were still Jews, and, and we had encountered this group before, remember? Uh, they had been amongst the, they had been the ones who were complaining uh, to the apostles about the, the mistreatment of their widows in Jerusalem and the, the daily distribution of food. So, so we know that some of these Hellenists had become Christians. They were Hellenists in the church. But obviously there were Hellenists who were not in the church. There were Hellenists who were opposing the church. There were Hellenists who were opposing the, the proclamation of the gospel. And this is who Paul is, uh, is disputing with here. Now, again, Luke tells us this because earlier, remember, up in uh, verse 23, he had told us that, that he had uh, been disputing with the, the Jews, the, the, the Hebrew-speaking uh, uh, Jews in Damascus. Now, here in Jerusalem, he's speaking with the Greek-speaking uh, Jews. It's, it's somewhat ironic, but, but the point is that he's, 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 he's uh, facing resistance from all quarters. He's, he's facing resistance from, from all sides. And he's going to compromise him in the face of that resistance. As we've seen many times before, as we saw with, with Jesus, as we saw with the apostles, as we saw with Saul even in Damascus. When they, are, when they refuse to compromise, the opposition escalates. And eventually it escalates to the point of violence. Eventually it escalates to the point where they are plotting to kill him. So this is now the second time in Saul's brief ministry that his opponents are literally trying to take his life. And again, here we, we see, as we saw in Damascus, that the brothers helped Paul escape, this time back to his own hometown of Tarsus, by way of Caesarea. And seeing this again, seeing this uh, pattern uh, play out yet again is, a, is another vivid reminder of what we have seen already so many times in the book of Acts. That reminder that when we preach the gospel boldly, when we preach the gospel without compromising, without accommodation, it will provoke strong, sometimes even violent opposition from the world. A church that faithfully proclaims the one true apostolic gospel will be we don't always feel this as intensely as, as believers do in other parts of the world. In other parts of the world, the, the murderous rage of the, of the world is felt acutely. We pray for the persecuted church. We, we listen to groups like Voice of the Martyrs and we, we hear their stories. But you need to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ will provoke opposition, opposition even here. Even here in the, the South. Even here in Cleveland. Even here, many people will forcefully object to the idea that we are sinners justly condemned. People will object to the idea that, that Jesus is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. They will object to the idea that a person must repent and, and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord in order to escape from the wrath to come. And sometimes they will object forcefully. Preaching this gospel will provoke charges of being narrow, of being backward, of being hateful, of being bigoted. And the, and the consequences may grow even more severe in the days to come. This is nothing new. Something that should surprise us. We need to be prepared so that as Peter says in his first letter, we are not surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. As the author of Hebrews says, but that day may come. 
we must continue to preach the gospel. We must not compromise regardless of the cost. We do not want to be offensive in and of ourselves. We, we do not want to, uh, to take a stand on secondary and third level issues, but we must continue to preach the gospel knowing that it will offend us. We must preach it without compromise or accommodation. We don't go looking for trouble. We see that here. When God provides Saul with a way of escape, he takes it. We don't go looking for trouble. We don't even have to continue to, to endure the trouble when there's a way out. But we must never compromise the gospel. This is what we learn from Saul's escape. So think about what we've seen. Think about what we've seen in this text. We, we've seen Paul's reception in Jerusalem. And, and in the reception, we, we've seen the, the need for community that every believer has. And the need to respond to our suspicions of one another with grace. In his ministry, we've seen the importance of, of preaching the gospel boldly without compromise. And in Paul's escape, we've seen the reality that such preaching will inevitably bring about opposition, sometimes violent opposition. <coughs> this is why Jesus said that whoever would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow because following Jesus is going to feel like dying. Sometimes it feels like dying when you have to engage someone who has hurt you in the past. When you have to engage someone who, who disagrees with you about a matter that's not at the heart of the gospel, but nevertheless is close to your heart. It feels like dying to engage those people. It feels like dying to, to, to have community with such people. Yet that's what we are called to. And at the same time, it feels like dying to preach the gospel to people who hate it. To people who oppose it, even violently. And so we are required, on both fronts, to take up our crosses and follow our Savior. Because we know His promise. That whoever loses his life to follow Him, that one will save his life. That one will find true life and find it abundantly. It's because we have such a promise from Jesus that following him leads to life, even when it feels like dying. It's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that you showed the Apostle Paul and the example that he set for us of how to, to walk in accord with the gospel. Father God, I pray that you would be with us and that you would allow us to, to be people who, who are gracious and, and flexible with one another in every way except when the gospel is at stake. Then may we be steadfast. May we be uncompromising. May we be as inflexible as our Father. That we might hold on to your gospel in community with other believers praise of your glorious grace, both now and forevermore. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.